You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians, feel free, if you're not sure where that's at, feel free, you you know, God bless you with a uh, table of contents in the uh, opening part of your Bible so you can find your way there. If you're using your phone, then you've got it made because you can just uh, go into the app and find that real easily. First Thessalonians, we're starting a new series today in which we're going to be studying through First and Second Thessalonians, and we're going to begin by reading our text, which will be the whole first chapter of First Thessalonians. So let's begin by reading this text, starting in verse 1, First Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we study it, as we go into these verses, Lord, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts? Lord, would you give us understanding? that we might not just understand these words, Lord, as information, but Lord, that they would have power in our lives, that they would have transforming power as we give our hearts and give our lives over to you. Lord, would you turn those things uh, in our minds on their head that are not right? Lord, would you turn us upside down in the best way possible? And Lord, we pray that as you do that, Lord, equip us, use us for your mission that you've called us to. Lord, we just dedicate this time to you. We give you our attention and our hearts, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, how many of you would agree that we live in a world where there are a lot of things that are not the way they ought to be? They're not the way they should be. Maybe you look around at the world and you see things and you say, okay, I get that that's how it is, but that's just not the way that it should be. It's not the way that it ought to be. There's something about it that's not right. You know, maybe people are selfish and mean, but it shouldn't be that way. Maybe people are unfaithful or petty, but that's not the way it ought to be. And you could go on with that list, of course. You know, when Jesus came, what he did is he taught values and principles which were completely upside down from the way that people naturally tend to think. Think about it. In a world that says, if you hurt me, I'll hurt you back. Jesus came and he said this. He said, no, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. In a world that says, love your friends and hate your enemies, Jesus came in and he said, no, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In a world that says, get as rich as you can and accumulate as much stuff as you can, Jesus came and he told us a story about a man who did exactly that, a man who would be considered a success in the eyes of the world, but Jesus called that man a fool. 
He said, that man, he, he was a fool because he did nothing to make himself rich toward God. He did nothing to prepare himself or invest in eternity to come. In a world that says, always look out for yourself, look out for number one and do whatever makes you happy. Jesus said, no, don't do that. That would lead to all kinds of bad things, right? Rather, look for ways that you can serve others. Rather than exalting yourself, humble yourself. In a world that says, don't let anyone else ever tell you what to do, Jesus came in and said, no, don't be your own master. Rather, submit your life, submit your plans and your will to God. Make him your Lord, your master. Everything that Jesus taught, Almost everything, right? It was completely upside down and backwards to the way that people naturally tend to think. And yet we, we live in a topsy-turvy world, don't we? We live in a world, like I just mentioned, that in which there are many things that are not the way they ought to be. They're not the way that they should be. We live in a world that often calls bad good and good bad. And, and that means that if we live in a topsy-turvy world, Jesus comes in with his upside-down teachings, and that is exactly what we need in order to turn this topsy-turvy world on its head and make it right side up. You see, it's not just the world, though. It's not just culture and the world out there that's topsy-turvy and upside down. It's also us. Do you guys realize that? We are not the people that we ought to be. It's not just the world out there. It's not just some people. It's us as well. And so Jesus came and he came proclaiming to be a king who came to establish a kingdom. And yet his kingdom, he said, was not like any other kingdom the world has ever known. His kingdom was an alternate system which functions on different principles than the kingdoms of this world. For example, Jesus said this. He said, the rulers of this world domineer over their subjects, but it will not be so among you. He said, no, in my kingdom, the first shall be last and the greatest among you will be the servant of all. The Bible tells us the big story of the world and what it tells us, right, this big picture story, it tells us that God created the world and when he created it, he created it good. Everything he created was good, including us. But something happened that turned the world on its head. Something happened that affected everything. We were given a choice. And given the choice, we chose to push God away. And the result of our rebellion was that sin came into the world. And with sin, imperfection, things were no longer the way that they were originally meant to be. And a myriad of consequences came into the world as a result of sin entering the world, including death, disharmony, hatred, lust, selfishness, pride, and etc. You can go on. The good creation was turned upside down. It retained much of its original goodness. It wasn't all lost, right? We still have beauty and joy and goodness in this world, but it's tainted and it's twisted and it's upside down. But God made a promise, didn't he? He made a promise that even though we had gotten ourselves into this mess, he would be the one to act and to fix it. Even though we had turned our backs on him, he would not turn his back on us. Rather, he would intervene in our world to make things right side up again. And in the fullness of time, this is a story that the whole Bible together tells, that in the fullness of time, Jesus came into the world to do just that, to turn this topsy-turvy world on its head to make right the things that are wrong. And he did it in an upside down kind of way, didn't he? he, he his victory came through defeat and death. V victory through loss. 
And, and the Bible tells us that as a result, the day is coming when everything in this world will be turned on its head. Power will be shifted. Values will be changed. Every tear will be wiped away. Pain and sin and death will be no more and everything will be made right the way we all know deep down in our heart of hearts that things ought to be. And the good news is this. You don't have to wait until the world to come in order to experience that upside down kingdom. You can experience that kingdom even now in part by making Jesus your king. He comes into your life, you submit your life to him and he absolutely does a work of revolutionizing things, turning things around. In Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, we are gonna meet a group of people whose world was turned upside down in this very way. They heard the gospel, they responded to it and as a result, they began to see things completely differently, didn't they? Their attitude was completely turned on its head. They began to see obstacles as blessings from God. They began to love their enemies. They began to have hope rather than despair, even in the midst of unrelenting hardship. They forgave their enemies. They reached out in love to those who had hurt them. They gave up their autonomy and submitted their lives to God. What made them act that way? What made them respond that way? And, and even more importantly, how can we then also experience that same kind of revolution in our lives that they did in their lives? That's what we're gonna be looking at here in this series that we're calling Upside Down, in which we're gonna be looking through the books, of, we're gonna be studying verse by verse through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. You know, here at Whitefields, we, uh, we're Bible people. Somebody was asking me about our church the other day. They're like, so Tell me about your church. I said, what can I tell you? I'll tell you this. We're Bible people. That's what we do. That's what we're about. We study books of the Bible. We love to go through them verse by verse. And guys, that's what we're gonna do over the next several weeks. And here's what I wanna challenge you with. Right now, you guys have perfect attendance, right? If you keep this up, over the course, well, I mean perfect attendance for this series, over the course of the next few weeks, if you stick with us, you will have studied through two entire books of the Bible from beginning to end. And I believe that as you do that, it will affect your life. It won't, you won't just grow in knowledge, but it will affect your heart, it will affect your mind. You will grow as a result, as a person and in your relationship with God. And so I wanna challenge you to do that and commit to this series. You see, in 1 Thessalonians, what we have is a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to a church in Thessalonica, which is a city in Greece. Paul had started this church and he had been their very first pastor. But his time there in Thessalonica was cut short. In chapter three, Paul tells them this. He, he tells them, you guys, you are my glory and my joy. That's what he says. When I think about you, this is the truth. You are my glory and my joy. Paul loved these people. He was proud of them and he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to spur them on. Think about riding a horse, right? When you're riding a horse, it's moving and you spur it on to do what? To get it going even more, to get it going even faster. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to encourage them. He said, you guys are doing great, but I wanna spur you on even more, do even better. He also wrote to instruct them. You see, Paul's time in Thessalonica was cut short. He didn't get to stay there as long as he originally planned. There were a lot of things he still needed to teach them. There were a lot of unanswered questions that they had. And so Paul, he writes this letter to instruct them. 
But in order to get the, the full picture, we need to go back to the book of Acts in which we read the backstory on the church in Thessalonica. So feel free to turn there if you'd like, just to have it in front of you. In Acts chapter 17, Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he wasn't alone. He was with a few other people. There was a guy with him named Timothy, who was one of his uh, disciples, you know, one of person he was mentoring. He also had another guy with him named Silas, who was also known as Silvanus. And they were a team in this missionary journey they were on. You know, we send missionaries out. We have some out right now, as a matter of fact. They usually go for, you know, 10 days, two weeks. Well, these missionary journeys lasted for several years. So they were on this second missionary journey uh, for several years as a team, these three men. And notice how this letter begins. Uh, as opposed to other letters, which are just from Paul, this letter begins differently. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, three people, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. These three guys are the ones who had originally come to Thessalonica, and they signed their name here at the beginning of the letter. Why do they sign their name at the beginning of the letter? We always write our name at the end, right? Well, the reason they put their names at the beginning of the letter is because in those days, they wrote these letters on scrolls. And a scroll like 1 Thessalonians could have been two or three feet long. And you consider this is a relatively short letter compared to some of the other ones that went out. And so, you know, if you get a scroll... You open it up and you immediately see, okay, who is this from? How much attention do I need to pay, right? Like, is this Allstate just fishing for more business? And then you just don't even read it. Just imagine how much of a bummer it would be to, like, get uh, junk mail back in the day and, like, a scroll. And you got to, like, unroll this thing, like, five feet just to find out, oh, you know, dear resident. Okay, well, it's a bummer. But now they open it up and they see, oh... Paul, Silvanus, Timothy, those are the guys who came to us. Those are the guys who started our church. They are the ones who came and risked their own lives to bring the life-giving message of the gospel to us. They would have been dialed in. They would have been tuned in. What do these guys have to say to us? What do they want to say? And, and so for sure, when they saw who had written it, they would have been excited. Now, the city of Thessalonica, it's now today the second largest city in Greece. It goes by the name of Thessaloniki. It's in northern Greece in the region which even today is called Macedonia. Back in that time, it was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. And it was a major city, one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. The story of Paul's arrival in Thessalonica is found in Acts 17, but the real story actually begins a chapter earlier, in chapter 16. And again, feel free to just browse over that with your eyes as we talk about this. Here, here's what's interesting. I find this fascinating. Paul never actually planned to go to Thessalonica. It wasn't in the cards. It wasn't something that he, uh, you know, had planned to do. It wasn't something he intended to do. Paul's plan was to go in a completely different direction, to a completely different place. He wanted to go to the province of Asia, which was a, a Roman province in modern-day Turkey. But it didn't work out. It says that God forbid him from going into Asia, which is a little weird, right? I mean, it's not like he was going there to sell drugs or like, you know, commit fraud. He's going there to start churches and preach the gospel and God shuts the doors in front of him. You can imagine he must have been confused. He must have been kind of disappointed and wondering, God, what? I'm trying to do something good for you. Why would you not help me out here? Why would you not open the way before me so that I could go? So he said, okay, fine. That door's closed. I'll go somewhere else. So he tried to go to another Roman province in modern-day Turkey called Bithynia. But it says there in Acts 16 that the Spirit of Jesus 
did not allow him to go to Bithynia. Again, very strange, right? Now, how many of you have ever had a plan for your life, uh, an idea of how things were going to work out, you know, whether it's a six-month plan or a year plan or a five-year plan or whatever it is, or a plan for your entire life, and and you plan, this is what's going to happen, you're praying for it, you're planning, and then it all falls apart, and it doesn't work out the way you planned. Everywhere you turn, closed doors, right? Closed doors slammed in your face. It seems like nothing you want to do works out. It's frustrating, isn't it? You can imagine, again, put yourself in Paul and his friend's shoes. It's a confusing time. It's a disappointing time. You're wondering, you're questioning God. God, why would you not open the doors wide before me? I'm trying to do something good. You can imagine they must have been questioning God. Why is he not helping them? Why is he allowing things to go the way they're going? But it was in that moment of frustration and confusion and disappointment that God spoke to Paul in a vision. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 16, verse nine. It says, in the middle of the night, Paul got a vision of a man of Macedonia. Now remember, where's Thessalonica? It's the capital of Macedonia. And he spoke to him in this dream, urging him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. God wanted to take these guys, these missionaries, somewhere where they had not even planned to go, somewhere that wasn't even on their radar. He wanted to take them to Europe. And we all know the history, right? Christianity in Europe has, from there, reached the whole world. And it wasn't even on their radar, though. They just wanted to stay in their own little small region, not even leaving Turkey. God wanted to take them somewhere else, do something even bigger. And so God directed them, how? By hindering their plans. Do you get that? Do you know that that's true in your life as well? Sometimes God directs you by hindering your plans, by shutting the door in your face. And then he showed them the next direction, the next step that they should take. You know, one of the questions that people often ask me is, how can I know God's will for my life? Like, how can I know what God wants me to do? I've got all these different options. I've got all these different directions I can go. How do I know which one I should choose? Well, the book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Here's what it tells us, some wisdom for knowing what to do. It says this in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. See, we all have dreams. We all have hopes of what our lives are going to be like, where we're going to go, what we're going to do. And sometimes God makes those dreams a reality. But other times, God wants to do something completely different than what you've dreamed and what you've imagined and what you've planned for yourself. And, and again, other times when God wants to do that, sometimes he wants to do something else that's very good. We believe that all of God's plans for us are good, right? And so the question is this, are you willing to hold your dreams and your plans with an open hand? Are you willing to submit all of your dreams, all of your plans, all of your life over to God, knowing and trusting that he's a good God and that he has a plan for your life that is actually better and bigger than anything else that you could have planned for yourself? And one of my mentors always used to say this. He said, consider yourself a penny in God's pocket. Just be a penny in God's pocket that he can spend wherever and however it pleases him most. See, it doesn't mean that God's plan will then be free of problems and difficulties. No, we see that as they go to Thessalonica, they almost get killed. And yet that's exactly where God wanted them to be. But on the whole, the end result, as you submit your plans to God, it's going to be good and glorious and beautiful. 
You know, David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa, he, he brought the gospel to the interior of Africa. At the time he did it, Africa was the least Christianized place in the entire world. To this day, uh, much to do, uh, much Due to the work of David Livingston, it is now the most Christianized place. Sub-Saharan Africa has the higher, highest percentages of Christians per capita than anywhere else in the world. And so this man, David Livingston, was used by God to set all of those things in motion, to explore the interior of Africa and bring the gospel. But did you know that originally he didn't plan to go to Africa at all? He was trying to go to China and it didn't work out. The mission agency wouldn't send him to China. So he's like, well, I guess I'll go to Africa and the rest is history. William Carey, the man who pioneered the modern missionary movement in India, he originally planned to go to Polynesia, but again, it didn't work out. The doors were closed, and so he went to India. Me, I, I was trying to get to Hawaii, but I ended up here in Longmont, which is also good, I guess, right? Like, um, but... You know, I've known a lot of people who wanted to do good things. Uh, they wanted to get married. They wanted to have children. They wanted to go somewhere and do something. But the doors are just closed. And I've seen people, you know, get laid off from their jobs. And like Paul, sitting there in Acts 16, you can't help but be confused and frustrated and wondering, okay, God, like, what, why? Why is this happening to me? And the question you need to ask yourself in those moments is this. Are you willing to submit your plans to God and embrace his direction for your life, even if it wasn't what you originally hoped for or envisioned or planned? See, Paul and his team, they embraced this new direction that God had given them to go to Macedonia, even though it was something that wasn't what they had originally planned or envisioned for how they were going to spend their time and spend their lives. But the end result was something great and something beautiful. When they got to Thessalonica, it says that they started telling people about Jesus, proclaiming this new king. And some responded and others didn't. But from those who responded, they formed a church. And that church started meeting in the house of a man named Jason. See, these the early churches, they didn't have buildings. They didn't have fancy cathedrals. No, they were meeting wherever they could. People's houses, parks, down by the river. The church in Philippi originally met down by the river. And then they, uh, they met in some lady's house, right? This church here in, in uh, Thessalonica comes together and they just fill up this guy's house. And they go in there and they study the word of God together. Because the church, guys, it's people. It's not buildings. And so they... What happens, though, is that this mob hears about these people coming to town and proclaiming Jesus, this king, and they don't like it, so they surround the house of Jason, and they drag these Christians out into the streets. This is they took them before the authorities and listened to what they said about them. They said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Let me just say that again. These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here also. And they went on to say, these Christians, they are telling everyone that there is a new king named Jesus. See, Christianity hadn't even come to Thessalonica yet at this point, but their reputation preceded them. The word on the street was that there were these Christians out there and they were turning the world upside down. They were changing cities. They were changing the culture of that day. And these people didn't like it. They didn't like the idea of someone coming in and changing their town and changing uh, people in their town. See, as Christianity was spreading throughout the world, it was creating a revolution, one life at a time, turning lives and then communities upside down, but really right side up. 
See, Paul and his team, they ended up having to flee because of this angry mob that wanted to kill them. They were only in Thessalonica for three weeks. Imagine that, guys. It's like speed church planting. Come into town, preach the gospel, form a church, and then get chased out of town by an angry mob. Three weeks you're in town. They had only just begun teaching them uh, the word of God, these new believers. But they said, hey, we gotta go. We're gonna get killed. So we entrust you to God. Here's the Bible, like read it. Here's how to understand it. Here's how to see Jesus in it. And they kept uh, entrusting them to the Lord and they said, hey, we're gonna keep in touch. So they went on, they made their way to Berea, which is to the south. And then they made their way all the way down to Athens. And it was there in Athens that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're together, they're sitting around. They're like, man, I can't believe we had to leave Thessalonica so fast you know what, we, we, gotta, we gotta check in on those guys and see how they're doing. Are they still walking with the Lord? Are they staying true to the word? How are they doing in the face of all this persecution? Are they holding up? And they said, Timothy, we need you to go up there. You know, sneak into town, visit the church, see how they're doing, and then bring us a report. Tell them, send them our greetings, but also we wanna know how they're doing. We wanna know if they're still walking with the Lord and doing well. So they send Timothy, and remember, no text messages, no email, no nothing. I mean, I don't even know how people did this in the past. They just got on trains and went places and had no idea, like, what was gonna happen. And so here's Timothy. He travels, you know, over land. He goes up to Thessalonica, sneaks into town so that people who wanna kill him, don't see him, his clandestine act, right? And he goes into the church, visits them, spends some time with them, finally comes back. You can imagine Paul and Silas just waiting. When's he going to come back? Is he going to come back? Did he get caught on the way? Is he, did he die? How's the church doing? One day, Timothy walks back in the door, right? Like after months, no idea when or how he's going to come back. He just walks in the door and they're like, Timothy, we're so glad to see you. But their next question is, Timothy, how are they doing? How are the Thessalonians doing? And Timothy says, oh my gosh, you guys, they're doing so great. Like you wouldn't even believe it. They're doing better than we could have ever hoped. And so really what this letter is, is Paul's response to Timothy's glowing report about how the Thessalonians were doing. You see, rather than wilting under the pressure that they were facing, the Thessalonian Christians were thriving in the face of adversity. Isn't that upside down? Isn't that backwards to the way that we often think? But let me just say that again. Rather than wilting under the pressure, the Thessalonian Christians were thriving in the face of adversity. How do you do that? How do you, how do you get to that place? What's their secret? Well, what we're gonna see here in chapter one is that their upside down response to the hardship in their lives was a direct result to their relationship with the word of God, their relationship with the word of God. That was the best thing that Paul and his team did. Not only did they give them the gospel, but they gave them the word of God. And we see that their relationship with the word of God shaped their upside down response to what they were going through. There are three ways that we see the word getting out in this first section. Three ways in which the word got out. First of all, the word got out to them then the word got out through them, and then the word got out about them. So that's what we're gonna look at over these next few verses. Paul says in verse two, as we just go verse by verse, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. When Paul thought of the 
Christians in Thessalonica, his heart was filled with gratitude. See, Paul knew he was only there for a few weeks, right? Anything that was happening with them, it wasn't uh, his credit at all. This was truly the work of God. The fact that this church was strong and full of life, the believers there, the work that was going on was beyond anything he could have done. It was the work of God. He says in verse three, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the thing about the Thessalonians, they weren't perfect. They had problems just like anybody else. In fact, let me tell you a few just so that we are clear on this. Paul is later on, he's gonna have to defend himself. He's gonna spend a whole chapter defending himself against slander and false accusations that the Thessalonians brought against him. Uh, the Thessalonians also had an issue with morality. Paul's going to have to talk to them about that and instruct them and rebuke them about sexual immorality, which again was something we talked about a few weeks ago. We talked about sexual ethics, right? It's something that was commonplace in the Greek society of that day. But again, this was one of those areas where God wanted to turn something upside down in their lives. Furthermore, the Thessalonians, not only did they have an issue with slander and gossip, not only with an issue with sexual immorality, but they weren't completely straight on their doctrine, right? They had some issues with their doctrine, uh, with their theology, and Paul's going to write to correct some of their wrong ideas in, the, in these letters. But here's the thing, despite their problems, despite their shortcomings, Paul was grateful for the Thessalonians because there was an undeniable work of the Holy Spirit in their lives which had produced a definite change. He mentions in this verse the three great Christian virtues, doesn't he? Faith, hope, and love. And he says, these are present in you. I see them in you. See, here's something that we learned from Paul, which is very important for any of you who are parents or managers at work or leaders of any kind. Notice what Paul does. Before he gets into anything else, he praises them for the things they're doing right. And that's just a principle for us to take note of. A good leader praises what they want to see repeated. A good leader praises what they want to see repeated. Sure, there were issues, and Paul's going to get to those issues. But before he does that, first he praises them for the things he wants to see more of, faith, hope, and love. But notice, Paul doesn't just mention these three virtues. He focuses on what these virtues produced in their lives. First of all, he says, your faith, your faith produced work. Faith produced work. See, true faith always results in actions. True faith always results in actions. Earlier this year, we studied through the epistle of James. And that's something that James teaches us, that faith that doesn't manifest itself in actions is suspect. Maybe it isn't even true faith. Maybe it's dead. Maybe it's empty or fake. See, true faith results in action. See, our theme for this year as a church has been faith in motion. That's who we want to be as a church. People who have faith and real faith that puts us in motion. Genuine faith that manifests itself in actions of love for God and love for other people. Secondly, we see that their love produced labor. See, true love always does. It produces labor. We see the truest example of this in Jesus who showed his love for us in his labor for us, in his life and death and resurrection. And it's in response to his labor for us, his labor of love, that we now respond by laboring in love towards other people, not just in word, uh, but also in deed. And he says this, your hope produced 
steadfastness. Your hope produced steadfastness, patience, endurance in the face of what you're going through. That's what true hope always does. It enables you to keep going when things get hard. Verse four, he says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. See, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they had come to Thessalonica. They had told these people the good news about Jesus and the people had responded. These people who were in the church, they had trusted in Jesus. They had embraced the gospel. They had believed what Jesus did for them, not just that it was true in general, but that it was true for them. But now on the other side of that decision to believe the gospel and to follow Jesus, that choice, Paul tells them something that is wonderful and mysterious and mind-blowing. He says this, hey, do you guys realize that yes, you chose to follow Jesus, but did you know this? That he chose you. He picked you to be his because he loves you. See, the message of the gospel is that God saves and he does it from beginning to end, right? He's the one who places his love on you, his love on you, and he saves you. Everything else is our response to what he has done for us, the amazing act of God. You know, this doctrine of God choosing people, it's called the doctrine of election. And some people get a little tripped out on it, right? But let me tell you this, this is good news. The fact that God would choose you. Don't let this ever be something that bothers you. Let this be something that warms your heart. I don't know about you, but I don't get picked for a lot of things. I have this cousin. She's been on like three game shows. She was on The Prices, right? She won the Showcase Showdown. I'm not kidding. She was on Ellen. She won a bunch of stuff. She did this like dance-off thing. She's like the person who gets picked for everything. Me, not as much, right? But the fact that God would look at me and choose me in spite of my flaws, in spite of the wrong things that I've done and still do, that blows my mind and warms my heart. Maybe you'd say, well, hang on a second, Nick. Here's Here's what messes me up. This is what's got me confused. So did the Thessalonians choose God or did God choose them? You know what I'm gonna say. The answer is yes, of course. The answer is both, right? That's exactly what happened. God chose them and they chose God. But of course, God's choosing of them, we have to admit, predated their choosing of him. It says in Ephesians that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But wait a second, you might say, wait, so do you believe that any person could be saved just by choosing to put their faith in Jesus? Of course I do, right? Well, well then how does it work? Did I choose God or did God choose me? Precisely. That's exactly what happened. Now imagine it like this. Think about it like this. It's as if when a person makes their decision of their own volition, right, to put their faith in Jesus Christ, it's as if they walk through a door which has the words written on it, let anyone who wants to come enter in. But then once they've entered through that door, they look back, they turn around, and they see what's written on the other side of the door, which is this, chosen from before the foundation of the world. Maybe you say, well, Nick, how do I know if I'm chosen? I'll make it real easy for you. Do you want to embrace the gospel? Do you want to be saved? Do you want to? Then do it. Make the decision to put your faith in the gospel. Embrace it. That's your part. God choosing, that's his part. Your part is to hear the gospel, understand it, and believe it. See, the good news of the gospel 
is that God loved you so much that he chose to save you and to make you his child. That's really good news, guys. He chose to change your destiny, to intervene in your life, and to turn your life upside down. And the only fair response to that kind of gift is for you to give your whole life and all that you are over to him. Verse five, it says this, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The word that they heard, the gospel, it wasn't just a matter of mere words. No, the gospel isn't just information, guys. You know, we live in the information age. We have so much information readily available to us. But guys, what we need is something more than just information, don't we? We need more than just information about Jesus. We need something that is true and that has the power to transform us. And that is what the gospel is. Paul said this to the Romans. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And we see that the word got out to them. That was the thing. The word got out to them. God had chosen them. He orchestrated the events of their lives in such a way that they would encounter people who shared the gospel with them and they believed they were saved and God was doing a work of transforming their lives, turning their upside down thoughts and lives right side up. But here's the thing. God's plan for them didn't only consist of them hearing the word and the word getting out to them. It was also the next point we have, which is this, that the word got out through them. The word not only came to them, it got out through them. He says in verses five and six, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. What does that mean that they became imitators of them and of the Lord. Well, there are a couple aspects that we see in these verses. First, he says this. He, he explains it. He says, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, because of the hope that they had in the gospel, both for this life and for eternal life, the Thessalonians had developed that same upside-down attitude to their circumstances that Jesus had, that the early Christian missionaries had. But that's not the only way that they imitated Jesus and the early missionaries. No, it says in verse 7, The word of God has sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. Remember, Macedonia, that's where they live. Thessalonica was in Macedonia. So what that means is that they hadn't just kept the good news to themselves. No, they had gotten it out there. They were already sharing it. Think about it. That's all they knew of Christianity. Missionaries had come to them and shared the gospel with them. So what do you do? Well, I guess that's what Christians do, right? You go out and now we got to share it with other people. So they did. But they didn't just stop at their local area. No, they kept going all the way down to Achaia. Now, Achaia is the southern part of Greece, southernmost part. Um, if you look on a map, it's that southernmost big chunk and it's where the cities of Corinth were located. The city of Athens was down there. And Achaia was roughly 300 miles away from Thessalonica. So the word was going out to people through the Thessalonian church to such a degree that I love what Paul says in verse 8. Check this out. He says at the end of verse 8, he says, look, if you guys keep this up, you're going to put me out of business, right? Like every, you guys have put out the word so much that there's just nothing left for me to do. I'm running out of people to talk to about Jesus. Everybody seems to have already heard. See, what's so incredible about this, these Christians in Thessalonica, remember, they didn't have all their ducks in a row theologically. In fact, even in their lives, they didn't even have everything cleaned up morally yet at this point. 
but that didn't stop them from sharing what they did know. They didn't know everything, but they were able to share what they did know with others. You know, I often talk to people who say this. They say, you know, I want to share my faith with other people, but I'm not comfortable doing it because I'm afraid that somebody's gonna ask me a question and I'm not gonna know the answer. They're gonna challenge me and it's just gonna, I'm not gonna know what to do and then it'll be bad for both of us because they'll get the wrong impression about Christianity and I'll say the wrong thing and I'll mislead them and then maybe my own faith will be shaken because I'm trying to answer their question and I'm just stumped. And you know, I'll tell you this, the ways that we grow most effectively in our lives are through need-to-know and need-to-grow moments. The ways that we grow most effectively are through need-to-know and need-to-grow moments. So when you're talking to your coworker and they ask you that question that you do not know the answer to, that's a need-to-know moment. And what are you gonna do in that time? Well, what you're gonna do, right? You're gonna go talk to your, your Christian friends. You're gonna say, okay, how do I respond to this? You're gonna open up your Bible and search the scriptures. You're gonna maybe read some books and read some articles because you need to know. And guess what? You're gonna retain that information a lot more than you would have otherwise because you need to know it. On the other hand, right, the need to grow moments. These are times when you face things that are difficult, maybe stretching you beyond what you feel comfortable with. And you need to grow because you've never faced anything like this before. And again, these are the moments when you grow the most because you have to. And I just want to encourage you in this. Don't avoid those moments. You need those moments. Make sure you put yourself where you're constantly being challenged with need to know and need to grow moments. I'll tell you this, the person who challenged me the most about the gospel and really was used by God in my life to bring me to a place of giving my life to God, they did not have all their ducks lined up theologically. And, and you know, they, they weren't... Um, totally there with all the answers, but she had the courage to speak to me about what she did know, and God used that in my life, and I want to encourage you to do the same. What you'll find is that as you share your faith with other people, what happens is that you are strengthened and built up in what you believe, and so I want to challenge you to do this. I want you to ask God to give you opportunities to talk about your faith, to talk about him with other people, and to give you the courage that when those opportunities arise, you're gonna step through those doors and you're gonna take them. Not only will it cause your joy to increase, expressing who Jesus is and what he's done, but it will cause joy to spread to others. And God will use you to bring hope to those who need it. Finally, we see that the word got out about them here in the last two verses. Paul says in verse nine, the word has gotten out about this incredible change that took place in your lives, guys. He says how you turned from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for God's son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their lives have been turned upside down and other people could see it, other people knew it. That's what it means to be a Christian. You see, their story is essentially the same as every other person's story who has become a Christian and put their faith in the gospel. They turned from idols to the living God. You know, an idol is really just a counterfeit God. It's something you look to to give you that which only God can give you. It's something you live for. It's your purpose in life that's something other than God. It's something you place your hope in. 
You know, in our day and age, of course, we don't tend to worship idols made of stone and wood like people did in the past, but that doesn't mean that we don't have idols in our day as well, right? Because all of those wood and stone idols, they all represented things. They represented things that people still worship and live for and pursue and hope in even today, right? Whether it's power or success, fertility and allure, Do people still worship those things? Of course they do. See, we haven't changed fundamentally as people. We want the same things. And what it means to be a Christian is to turn from those things and turn from worshiping those things and instead turn to worship the true and living God. See, those things, if you pursue them, they will always disappoint. They will never fulfill their promises. And not to mention this, they will also consume you and devour you as you pursue them. But as you look to your creator, the only one who can give you your identity, your purpose, your true fulfillment, that is when you will find all of those things that you're looking for in other things as you turn from idols to the true and living God. And these Thessalonian believers had a reputation. They were known for this incredible change that took place in their lives because of the gospel. May that be true of us as well. Paul concludes in this last verse by saying this. These Thessalonian believers, they now await Jesus, our risen Savior, who is coming again. The idea of waiting, it's the idea of waiting up, right? Like if you have a teenage child who's out on Friday night, you wait up until they arrive home. If your spouse is coming home from a long trip, you wait up until they walk in the door. The idea is that you don't fall asleep, you stay alert and expectant, awaiting them to come. And the message of the gospel, as Paul reminds us here, is this. Jesus has not only saved us from the wrath to come, the judgment that we rightly deserve because of our sins and rebellion against God. No, he's done even more than that. The day is coming when we will experience his kingdom in fullness forever. And that is the hope that gives us joy in the midst of any circumstance we face. That is the hope that turns everything upside down. Amen? Lord, we thank you. Lord, that you are our king who brings in an alternate system. Lord, the way that things ought to be. And Lord, thank you that you are working to turn everything in this world on its head. Lord, you, we, we ask that you would do that work in us as well. Lord, we need you to turn our thoughts, our minds, our lives, our attitudes on their head and make them right, right side up. So Lord, we give ourselves to you. We dedicate ourselves to you. Thank you, Lord, that you have set us free from the wrath that is to come. You have saved us. And Lord, now we turn to you and we await your coming, and that when that day comes, when all things will be made right. Lord, give us patience and endurance as we hope in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.